Well, hello, Christ Community Church. We are continuing our summer series, Both And. And so today we're headed back out on the town to find another surprising combination. Well, sometimes you can't decide if you're in the mood for breakfast food or dinner food. Here at Brick's Woodfire Pizza in Wheaton, they don't think you should have to choose. Let's head inside and see what's cooking. Well, I'm here with Giovanni, who's a manager here at Brick's. And Giovanni, why don't you tell me a little bit about wood-fired pizza? What makes it different from something that I've had before? Well, wood-fired pizza is actually like the original style pizza. It was actually created thousands of years ago. Everything is cooked in a brick oven, but it's all wood. We only use oak wood, so there's no gas lines. And that's kind of the difference, you know. We, it's more of a char to the pizza, a little chewy. And it's, a, you know, it's the original way to do it. Yeah. Well, we're interested in surprising combinations, and it seems like you've got one on your menu. Can you tell us a little bit about the Sunny Side Up pizza? Well, sunny Side Up is a, it's a pizza that we have our garlic oil sauce on it, and we put cheese, bacon, and then we put our two eggs on there that we cook in the oven. And by the time it comes out, it's still Sunny Side Up. All right. Well, that sounds excellent. Why don't we go take a crack at making one? To do this, I brought along a couple of friends from Kids World. All right, so we're gonna start out with uh, stretching the pizza first. It gives it that edge. This is our garlic oil sauce. We're gonna top it with our mozzarella blend cheese. Some of our bacon. That's a good part. There we go. Look at that bacon to anything. Yeah. It makes it better. A couple of our eggs. We just need to crack the egg on that. Yeah, there in the middle. Pizza. It looks like pies. How long does it take? Uh, roughly about uh, two minutes, 90 seconds. Well, now that you've made one, can we try? Yeah. Oh, That's fantastic. <laughs> you got this. <laughs> oh, I broke it too. Oh. <laughs> and that's why you leave it to professionals. <laughs> Should we try? Let's check this Let's out. Yep. Again. Absolutely. That's great. Yeah. Yummy. This is an excellent pizza. Egg, egg squisite, I'd say. Egg squisite. Yes. Uh -huh. You guys are cracking me up. Uh, uh, I'm let that one slide. <laughs> well, our guest speaker today is David Choi. You may remember David if you were here last summer. He gave an exceptional sermon on the life of Moses. Can, can we stop with the egg puns? Okay. <laughs> Well, David is the senior pastor of Church of the Beloved in Chicago, and it's great to have him back with us. So when he comes out on stage, give him a warm Christ community welcome. It's uh, good to be uh, back here in St. Charles. I want to give a shout out also to Blackberry Creek, Bartlett, and DeKalb. And those of you who are watching online, I also want to give a little shout out to my church people, Church of the Beloved. Thanks for coming out and supporting me. Um, I want to start off with a question um, that I'd love for you guys, if you uh, resonate with this, to raise your hand. 
Um, how many of you guys remember the first day of kindergarten? Raise your hand if you remember. Wow, good, good amount of you guys. Good amount of you guys. This is probably the most uh, brilliant service of all of, all of them. Um, I remember my first day of kindergarten. I grew up in the uh, Bay Area near Oakland, California. And we grew up in a pretty poor neighborhood. And uh, my mom and I were walking to uh, school together. And a lot of people who meet me today, they, they don't believe this about me. But I was actually a really shy kid. And so we, we walked to school together, and then when we were at the entrance of the kindergarten class, uh, she tried to let go of my hand as if to say you had to go to kindergarten by yourself. I didn't know that she wasn't going to go with me, so I started to cry like a little baby because I was a little baby, you know what I'm saying? And uh, she was, I, think, I remember her laughing at me, which was really scarring. And, uh, and so I let, she let go of my hand, and uh, because I grew up in a pretty poor neighborhood, you need to have a little swagger in that neighborhood, you know what I'm saying? So I... Wiped up my tears, tried to act tough, walked in with some uh, overcompensated kindergarten swagger. And this uh, huge kid, I mean, this kid was huge. He must have been at least this tall. And uh, <laughs> he walks up to me and he says, uh, I'm smarter than you are. And I was a pretty deep philosophical kid, so I asked him the question that all philosophers ask. I said, why? <laughs> to which he replied, because I've been in kindergarten for two years. And I was just like, bro, I don't know if you want to brag about that. <laughs> it's crazy to think about that years later, decades later for me, I still remember that first day of kindergarten. How many of you guys remember the 17th day of kindergarten? Anybody? 34th day? There's always one person who raises their hand. They have a photographic memory or something. But the rest of us, we don't remember those days after that first day. And there's something about the first time you experience something that is so memorable and often so significant. Maybe you remember the first time you fell in love with somebody. Maybe you remember the first time you went on a date with the person who would become your future spouse. Or the first time that you uh, held your first child in your hands. Or maybe it was the first time in your lifetime when the Cubs won the World Series. Oh, that hasn't happened? Well, that might happen this year. Amen? Amen? And if it does, you heard it here first, okay? But for a lot of us as Christians, when I ask believers the question, when was the time when you were most intimate with Jesus? When was the time when the word of God was sweetest to your soul? When was the time when you longed for his glory the most? When you found it easy to spend much time with Jesus? And the sad reality is that for most Christians that I talk to, uh, that moment was when they first encountered Jesus a long, long time ago. It's rare for me, unfortunately, to meet believers who say it's now. Now is the time when I love Jesus the most. Now is the time when the gospel is sweetest to my soul. In our church, I find that if I'm going to try to find people who find the gospel the sweetest, I tend to think about those who have just come to Christ. And yet when you look at the life of the Apostle Paul and other believers throughout church history, you find these uh, men and women who um, increase in their affection for the gospel over time. They're, they're, they're more willing to obey God in the hard things over time. And that's the kind of intimacy that God is calling us to. He's not calling us to have this one-time moment in our past, but he wants us to constantly stay close to him in first love. 
And so that's what we want to talk about today. The topic that was given to me is that God is demanding and gracious. And I know that this is an angle that maybe you wouldn't have expected. I think most people, if they were to teach on the subject, God is demanding and gracious, they would think about those passages with those hard commands, like Luke 14, where it says that, uh, that if you want to follow me, you have to hate your father, mother, your brother, sister, your husband, your wife. If you, if you want to follow me, you got to take up your cross daily. If you follow me, you got to give up everything you have. Like, like we think those are the hard ones, and those are hard. Don't get me wrong. But what if God wants even more than that? What if God's not impressed with just our mere external adherence? What if God's not impressed with the missionary who goes to the hard places if that heart is not doing it out of a response to the gospel, out of a glad joy in what Christ has accomplished for them? What if they're trying to do that to earn the approval of God rather than resting in the approval that Christ has already accomplished for them at the cross? And so what I want to start us off with is this first point to tell you this, that God is demanding more than just your deeds. God is demanding more than just your deeds. It's interesting, I got an email uh, not too long ago from a buddy of mine who is in the ministry and he uh, was going through a really dark season of his spiritual life and then the Lord by his mercy really broke through. And so he sent me an excerpt from a sermon that he gave and, and um, I'm going to read to you the first part before he had the breakthrough. And I want to ask you as you listen to this um, letter that you would uh, kind of just figure out if maybe you resonate with part of what he's saying. This is pretty, a, it's a pretty authentic, pretty raw letter from a pastor. But I, I think you, a lot of you will say, you know what, that's me. This is what he writes. He says, my story begins several years back, exactly when I cannot remember, nor is it important. Because at some point all the years blur backwards until about my junior high years. It's sad to admit, but since the years of my salvation slash first love in seventh to eighth grade, the rest of my life can be described as one long continual slide into deadness. Surprisingly, this includes my years in seminary, a call to ministry, and nine years of the pastorate. I know it's sad. But as I said, the relevant story here begins several years back because that's when it became <coughs> painfully apparent that I barely, barely had a spiritual pulse. Perhaps before then I was dimly aware of the long slide into deadness. I had this general idea that I was distancing myself from my first love. But like the proverbial frog in the kettle, I had grown comfortable with the incremental change that is until several years ago when I actually began to notice the temperature. The convergence of several issues shocked me into awareness, a troubled marriage, family issues, the persistence of deep sin, an anemic devotional life, a lack of love for God and others, insomnia, and addictions to caffeine, food, and distraction. I don't remember the precise moment, perhaps it was after a string of fights or in the midst of the noxious fumes of regret and shame after having sinned the same sin for the thousandth time. Whatever the case, enough things came crashing together that I started to actually see the height from which I had fallen, Revelation 2 verse 5. I could no longer separate my problems into neat little cubbies. I was out of excuses and justifications for my life. What I saw was very clear. I was spiritually flatlining. There was nothing there. I had nothing inside me. I know it sounds melodramatic. I'm a pastor. I should know grace. I should know forgiveness. But I can honestly tell you that when I get on my knees to pray, there were just fumes. I'd open up my Bible and nothing penetrated my heart. Those nights I could not sleep. Every time I closed my eyes, I would hear accusations of fraud, imposter, liar. That's really the way I felt, a pastor with no heart, a dead man pretending to have life and give life, a spiritual corpse walking around masquerading in a suit. I looked alive because I had to, but if anyone were to get close enough, they could probably smell the rot. 
Falling asleep was torture. I would have to lull my mind to sleep, either through TV or the internet. I would watch and surf until out of sheer exhaustion I'd fall asleep. But as you know, neither a good caretaker to the soul. I'd fall asleep to a riot of sounds and images, but this was still preferable to the chorus of fraud and imposter. Some nights when I would muster enough energy to pray, it would be like trying to breathe inches away from a car exhaust. A thick cloud of guilt and shame would oppress me. I literally choked on guilt. I could not get the words out. The whole thing was so pathetic. Now this is in my private prayer life, in public, at prayer meetings, or from the pulpit. I would manage to string together eloquent spiritual words, and I probably meant them, but alone at night, trying to really connect with God, there was nothing. So this is where I was over the last few years. Perhaps it wasn't always this bad. There were a few moments where a glimmer of hope would trickle through, but the curtains surely never parted for me. It was generally dark. No one probably knew how far I'd wandered except for my wife, who feared that my heart was so irrevocably dead that my time in ministry was numbered. My staff did not know. My elders did not know. I don't think any of you knew. But this is where I was, in a very distant country, far from home. I wonder if some of you would say, that's me right now. Maybe some of you are serving in this church. Maybe you've been going to church for much of your life. Maybe you know the right theology and you know the right things to say. Maybe you're leading a small group or whatever it might be. But you know, perhaps better than anybody else, that your heart is not in first love with Christ. That Jesus and, and enjoying his presence and his promises is not enough for you. You need to do things for him. You're like Martha who is always busy and, and distracted. You're not like Mary who chose what is better and sat at the feet of Jesus and just listened to his word. God demands more than just our deeds. I'm not married so this is a hypothetical uh, illustration for me but maybe some of you guys could relate to this. Imagine for a moment that um, your wife comes to you and says, hey can you do the dishes because you haven't done the dishes in like three years. And they've piled up quite a bit since then. <laughs> and so you do the dishes as asked, but when you're done, she's not happy. She's still upset with you. And you're furious. Why are you still upset with me? I did the dishes. Because it didn't look like you wanted to do the dishes. Didn't look like you were happy to do the dishes. And, and you just blow up at her. You say, are you serious? Am I supposed to be happy? I mean, that was a lot of dishes. But what you didn't hear from her was there was this longing within her heart to see a husband who valued her enough and enjoyed her enough and wasn't taking her for granted and wanted to bring happiness and joy into her heart by doing it with a glad heart. See, she wanted to feel honored and valued by that. She wanted more than just your deeds. And the analogy is not perfect because God is not insecure. He doesn't need you to do these deeds for him because um, he needs your validation. He's self-sufficient. He doesn't need you to give him anything. He's completely secure in himself. But for God, it's actually a selfless motive. He loves you perfectly. And he created you and designed you for himself. And he recognizes that until you put God above all, until you find your ultimate satisfaction in him, until he becomes the supreme priority over every other delight and affection in your life, you will never be fully satisfied. He created you for himself. 
And so where a spouse might do it out of some level of insecurity, God does it out of selfless love. Even his demands are gracious. And I believe that you know deep down, if you're a follower of Jesus, you know that the sweetest times of your life were when you were with God. The sweetest times of your life were when you had a, a breakthrough in his word, when you were giving him everything and you knew the gospel in your soul. And yet so many of us get caught up in life. We get caught up in the comforts of this world. We begin to care more about financial security and stability. We care about the protection of our kids. And those things become primary and ultimate. And God becomes one of many priorities rather than the supreme priority over everything. And so we still do the motions. We still serve in a church. We still do Christian things. But we don't do it out of glad response and delight to the work of Jesus Christ in our lives. It's interesting as you look at the context, uh, this is the church of Ephesus and we actually have the privilege of um, having much of the New Testament uh, give us clues about what this church of Ephesus was like. If you look at the book of Acts, you will find out that the apostle Paul, the greatest missionary in the history of the church, spent more time in Ephesus than he spent anywhere else in his missionary journeys. He spent about three years in Ephesus. It was in Ephesus that he discipled Timothy to become an elder in one of the churches. Not only did he disciple Timothy, but Apollos, who was known to be the most eloquent and persuasive of speakers, also preached at Ephesus. Later in church history, we find out that the apostle John also spent some time ministering in Ephesus. I mean, think about that for a moment. Four of their pastors, two of them were writers of the New Testament... The other one was probably the most eloquent speaker of his time, and the other one was, had a letter written to him named Timothy. I mean, those are like four of the greatest pastors you could ever have. I mean, imagine like Christ Community Church, that, like just imagine from all that Billy Graham planted this church. And then Rick Warren or Tim Keller uh, came in and took over after that. And then came along this young man named Jim Nicodem. And then, and then, you know, just throw in a fourth guy. We'll just throw in Clayton Keenan, the way that Kevin Durant was just thrown in with the Warriors. They didn't really need him, but he was legit. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> and so you're just like, you had the four of the greatest pastors, and, and you just think, well, that church should be legit. That church should be amazing. I mean, they had the Apostle Paul planted this church. Not only did these four amazing men of God pastor this church, but you find out in the book of Acts that when Paul was ministering in Ephesus, there were supernatural things that were happening. It was like a revival broke out in Ephesus where people were literally burning up scrolls that were worth uh, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars. And not only that, but when people took their handkerchiefs and aprons, which it just dawned on me, well, how weird is that? It's just like a weird story. Like people took their aprons, they're like in the kitchen, and they're like, I'm going to go see Paul, but I'm not going to take off my apron. And then they went to Paul and they just said, hey, I'm going to touch, I want Paul to touch my apron. That's weird, right? Hopefully none of you guys brought your aprons here because I'm not going to touch it if you ask me. You know what I'm saying? And so he takes the apron, touches him, and then he goes to a, a friend who's sick, touches that friend with the apron, and that, that person gets healed. It's weird stuff. I mean, it messes with your theological systems. You know what I'm saying? Not only did these supernatural things happen, he wrote a letter to the church of Ephesus, one of the great letters in the New Testament. If you look at the first two chapters of Ephesians, I think they're two of the greatest 
chapters on the gospel about how God chose us in him before the foundations of the earth, completely merciful and gracious, sovereign grace over us, nothing we did to merit his salvation. All of us should be humble before the Lord because we did nothing to earn this, amen? Not only did he uh, chose us in him before the foundation of the earth, but he calls us his poema, his workmanship, his masterpiece. We are the, the, the uh, delight of his affections and his love. He created us special and unique among all creation. Not only that, but he uh, saved us by grace alone, not by works, so that no one could boast. Not only that, but at the end of chapter 3, after this great description of the gospel, he gets on his knees and he says, For this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom his whole family in heaven and earth derives its name. And he begins to pray that, that in their inner being they will be rooted and established in love. That they would come to know this love that surpasses knowledge. That they would know the height and the depth and the breadth and the width of this love. I mean, he's on his knees pleading with the Father that they would know that they're the beloved of God because of Christ alone. And after all that, just a few generations later, Jesus writes a letter through the Apostle John to the church of Ephesus and says, You have forsaken your first love. It's crazy. What that says to me is it doesn't matter how great your pastor is. What it says to me is it doesn't matter how much you love Jesus generations ago. What it says to me is on this day do you recognize the gospel? On this day have you encountered the living God in his word? On this day have you cried out to him and said, God, I need you. Oh, I need you. Every hour I need you. And so God says to Christ Community Church, I demand more than just your deeds. Look again in the first few verses of Revelation chapter 2. He writes, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Later on, he has one more deed. So basically in this text, there's eight deeds that they have done that he says, I know these things and yet you must repent. And if you don't repent, I will remove your lampstand from its place. The lampstand is a symbol of the church. And what he's saying is, if you don't repent and return to me, your church will die. I don't know if you've ever been to these churches where they have churches, they have buildings, they might even have beautiful buildings. And they have programs, they might have awesome programs. But there's no spiritual vitality. I don't know if you've been to those churches. There's people there, but it's dead spiritually. And that's what, that's what John is warning through Jesus. He's saying, listen, if you don't repent, if you don't return to first love, your church will die. It doesn't matter what the heyday was back then. It doesn't matter if the Apostle Paul was your pastor. What about now? Do you realize your need of the gospel now? The second thing that I want us to notice in this passage is that God demands that we return to our first love. God demands that we return to our first love. Now when I was in uh, college at Wheaton, I studied Bible theology and then I went to seminary and studied more theology. And they taught us this thing called exegesis, which was how to interpret the uh, meaning of the text that was originally intended by the author. But one thing that I don't remember learning, and it might be because I was a bad student, but one thing I remember, don't remember is they didn't teach us how to interpret the tone of the text. 
how does Jesus say you have forsaken your first love? Does he say it out of anger? Does he say it out of insecure jealousy? Or does he perhaps say it out of a loving father, out of a loving husband who delights over you, who's, who, who's so glad when you come to him and tell him your needs and enjoy his presence, recognizes that even though you might still be going to church, your heart is in a far country from him, recognizes that you're not in maximum joy and maximum peace, that there's this low-grade insecurity, low-grade anxiety in your life, and says, listen, you've forsaken your first love. I miss you and I want you to be with me. Like I was just reflecting on that this morning about how beautiful it is to think that the creator of the universe, the one who is sovereign over every molecule that's ever moved on this earth, would look upon human beings like us who feel so insignificant and open up his house and his table and his feast to every one of us every day. He gets the room prepared. He sets the table. And he says to you individually, come. And if you come, you can feast on me. And I think he's like this excited host who's like hoping people will come. And I wonder in all the 7 billion people on earth and the 2 billion who call themselves Christians, on a given day, how many feast at the table of God? How many take him up on that invitation? And God says, I want you to feast on me for the rest of your days. Because I want you to be happy. I want you to have joy. I want you to be satisfied. I don't need you to be empty anymore. I want you to be satisfied so that the world would say, I want what you have. There's this passage in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 3, where Paul says this about the Thessalonian church. He says, we continually remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, your endurance inspired by hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. Your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, your endurance inspired by hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. And what's interesting is that if you compare both of these texts, you look at the church of Ephesus and the church of Thessalonica, they're both commended for their work, they're both commended for their labor, they're both commended for their endurance, but in the church of Thessalonica, uh, they are continually remembered before our God and Father. Paul is, is, is saying, I love this church. The church of Ephesus, Jesus says, I rebuke you. And I warn you. So what's the difference? Well, in the church of Thessalonica, it was work, but it was produced by faith in the gospel. In Ephesus, it simply became work. In Thessalonica, it was labor, but it was prompted by love. But in Ephesus, it simply became labor. In Thessalonica, it was endurance inspired by hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. But in Thessalonica, it just was endurance. You see, you can fool people with your external deeds. You can be busy in ministry, but you can't fool God. You see, God knows the heart. He knows who's being fueled by what Christ has done for them. And he knows who's also being fueled by a desire to earn the approval that Christ has already accomplished. And there's a radical difference, church, and you know that. So many of my years in ministry, I have tried desperately because I forgot the gospel to do ministry and to try to be holy and to tr try to be loving in my own strength, 
hoping that maybe, just maybe, God would love me then. Not knowing that the gospel has already secured for me every ounce of belovedness that I will ever have in eternity. That now out of glad delight in what Jesus has done for me, I can serve in his strength, in his love, and in his power. There's a radical difference. And I think everyone in this room who's a believer in Christ knows the difference. One leads us to tired, weary, sometimes bitter souls. And the other one leads us to life and joy and peace, humility. It's beautiful. Which one are you? Would you say that you've forsaken your first love? If you have, then God demands, because only God can demand. He's the king. He demands return to your first love. Lastly, God graciously shows us the way to return to first love. God graciously shows us the way to return to first love. Three things in this text that he gives us to prescribe to those who would say that they have forsaken their first love. Verse 4, it hold this against you, you have forsaken the love that you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. The first part says consider how far you have fallen, which in the NIV 1984 it says remember the height from which you have fallen. I like that translation better, but my best translation I would say is reminisce about the height from which you have fallen. I like to use the word reminisce because I think it's a little bit more visceral. It's a little bit more effective. It's a little bit more emotional. I think when I think about remember, I remember when I was in college, I would have Greek class. And about an hour before class, I would frantically try to cram all my Greek vocab into my head so I could spit it out on that test. But once the test was done, I was done with the memory of that. That's an academic, intellectual way of remembering. I think Jesus wants us to remember this on a, on a heart level. And what he says is reminisce. It's like the, when, I, when I meet up with my college friends. I graduated from college almost 20 years ago. And we don't get to see each other often because we live all over the nation and some all over the world. And so when we do get together, whether it be a wedding or a reunion, we always have a meal together and then we just talk story. We reminisce. Remember that time when you liked that girl and you were so into her, so you went up to her at the post office and you hollered at her, but you said the most ridiculous things and it was, it was awful so much so that she was never going to give you a chance again. She totally rejected you in that post office. Good times. Remember that time when uh, the Spirit of God came upon our campus in 1995 and revival broke out at Wheaton College and people were confessing sins and repenting in front of thousands of people and, and, and God moved in a significant way and our lives were transformed. We begin to tell stories. <clears throat> and then a longing is created because we forgot how good it was. And without even knowing it, we repent. We turn from where we are. We turn back to where we used to be. In a sense, we repent. See, a lot of us, we've experienced God in significant ways. We've just forgotten about it. We just get caught up in the business of life. Everything seems to be urgent and immediate. And I think one of the ways that the enemy tries to get us is to get us to forget how good God has been in our lives. So what I want you guys to do for the next few moments is just to close your eyes and I want you to remember and reminisce from your heart the sweetest times with God that you've ever had, where the gospel was beautiful, where the cross was everything, where you were willing to take risks of faith for Jesus. 
And then I want those of you who would say you're not a believer yet, I want you to imagine what it would be like if there really is a God who created you, designed you, knew you from the very beginning, set his affection upon you, knew that you would reject him, but still sent his son Jesus Christ to die on a cross for your sins, rose again the third day, so that if any moment you would want to receive his love, he would forgive you and give you intimacy with him and declare you righteous before a holy God. Imagine what that life would look like if you were a believer. How joyful that would be. How purposeful that would be. So everyone just close your eyes for a few moments. Try not to start falling asleep or praying. And just, just, just reminisce about that moment or those moments when Jesus was sweetest to your soul. All right, you can open your eyes. Now, I always, I always find this a little bit humorous because whenever I do this, I stare at people's faces and the majority of people, maybe 95% of people, when I ask you to reminisce about the times where it was sweetest with Jesus, this is how you guys look. Okay, now that's, I find that humorous. I'll tell you why. If I was doing a marriage conference right now and I said, hold the hand of your spouse, and reminisce about your first dates, about when you first fell in love, about the sweetest moments together. And when you closed your eyes, you looked like this. <laughs> and your spouse had her eyes open and was staring at you, looking like this as you remember the sweetest times together. That would be a long night for you. <laughs> that might be a long week for you. You might become acquainted with your sofa. And I think it just kind of, it just kind of reflects this. There's, I think there's something a little off with our theology. I think there's something about us that just doesn't realize God wants us to be happy. That God wants us to be joyful. That there's nothing, nothing more pleasurable than God himself. I don't think we believe that. So that even when we remember the greatest times of our lives, that's how we look. Like, like Adele, you guys know Adele? She just came to Chicago. And my friends couldn't hold in the joy of describing how Adele sang. And we have the God of the universe who sent his son Jesus for us. And his spirit dwells in us. And we look so miserable when we think about the greatest times with God. I want to share with you the, the first time when the love of God became real to me. I grew up in the church like some of you did. And... It was all head knowledge. It was never an intimate relationship with him. And then through some sovereign circumstances, God led me to go to a Christian college, which I never imagined I would go to. And I went to Wheaton College, and I signed up for this camp that was uh, two weeks before the school year started. Now, understand, I wasn't a committed Christian at that point, and I was 18, so I'd just gone through puberty, and I really liked girls, okay? So I was thinking to myself, I'm going to go to this camp early so I can meet the girls early, before all those football players come, you know what I'm saying? And, uh, and I'm Asian. I don't know if you guys knew that. I'm Korean. Some of you guys are like, what? And so there's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a difference between 
what I call ethnic camping, minority camping, and white people camping. There's a difference, all right? See, some of you guys, some of you white people, you don't know this. Minority camping, this is what we do. We go up to the Wisconsin Dells. We get a hotel. We go to Noah's Ark. We go to the Tommy Bartlett show. We come back to the hotel. We're camping. <laughs> Ask any minority here. There's like a tear in their eyes. Like, he knows me. <laughs> White people camping is different. White people camping is like Survivor, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> so when I signed up for this camp, I thought it was my camping. I brought dress clothes like this so I could impress the ladies. So we get, to this, we get to this dorm at Wheaton and we have this question and answer session. And this girl, everyone in my class remembers this moment. This girl asks, is it true that where we're going there's no toilet paper? And in front of all the incoming freshmen that were there, I was like, what? <laughs> and everyone started laughing at me. But I wasn't laughing. There was no toilet paper where we were going. And I was thinking to myself, my parents emigrated from Korea to come to America, the land flowing with milk and toilet paper. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> and then the questions kept flowing and I realized this is not the kind of camping that I thought it would be. And this pit in my stomach, I was feeling sick. We took a six hour drive from midnight to 6 a.m. to the northern woods of Wisconsin and we boldly went where no Asian had gone before. <laughs> I was literally like Captain Kirk in Star Trek, you know what I'm saying? And I found out that we didn't even get to go with the girls. We split up into our own genders. It was just 12 guys with one backpack weighing 60 to 80 pounds with your tent and everything in it. You would go to the creek and take the water and you had to boil it for, they said, a minimum of three minutes. Because if you boil less than that, this bacteria called Giardia won't die. So you had to mi minimally do three minutes. Otherwise you get Giardia, which gives you like stomach issues for like life, okay? So I'm boiling it like forever. They're like, Dave, it's like vapor. I'm like, keep boiling it. I don't want that Giardia stuff because one of the dudes on the trip had it and his stomach was jacked up, all right? <laughs> About a week into the trip, I actually started to enjoy the trip. It was weird. I was like, this is fun. You feel like a man. You feel like free. And then the leader says, okay, now we're going to separate by ourselves on the beach for three days, fasting and praying and just reading the Bible. All I could bring is a Bible, a notebook, and a pen. I thought he was joking. I was like, look at me. Do I look like I fast often? The only time I fast is between meals. A few of you guys will get that joke later, okay? And so, so I was just straight up like, you got to be kidding me. I thought the Bible was the most boring book in the world. I'd read the Bible growing up as a kid. And so I had to go and separate out and fast and pray on this beach for three days with nothing to do. Read the Bible. The second day of that fast, God did something significant in my life. Through his word and through creation, he spoke to me. He spoke to me two truths. I don't know if you've ever gone camping where there's no people, there's no lights. You look up at the stars and you see stars everywhere. I saw, I saw what looked like a spiral formation of our Milky Way galaxy. I saw shooting stars going left and right. And I realized whoever created this is huge. And he spoke that to me. That he was a creator and that he was big. And the second thing he spoke to me was that this creator who designed all this. Hundreds of billions of galaxies with one sentence. He loved me. I knew that my whole life in my head. But that day, by his mercy, he opened up my spiritual eyes. And I felt this joy begin to fill me like a two-liter bottle where you, of Coke where you shake it up. 
and the pressure builds and explodes, exploded in my face this joy. And I literally couldn't stop smiling for three hours straight. It was so awkward. I was like this for three hours. I was like. <laughs> for three hours. I, wa- I was going to do it for three hours, but our time is short. Just to show you how awkward it is. It's really awkward. And I, 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 I was so happy in God that I started dancing. I grew up Presbyterian church. And I did the running man. Not this new viral running man. The old school original. You know what I'm talking about? Who's with me? Come on now. MC Hammer. You know what I'm saying? I did the running man by myself. Worship the Lord to the old jams. Shout to the Lord. Lord, I lift your name on high. The hymns. For three hours, maybe the only time in the history of the world where a man was smiling from ear to ear, doing the hip-hop running man, worshiping with praise songs and hymns, happy in Jesus. I was so happy in Jesus, I didn't ever want to stray from him. Yet somehow, I don't know why, this sinful, rebellious heart found a way to go back to his old idols, to his old ways, and to reject what was without question the happiest moment of my life and continues to be when I'm in his presence and in his word and God breaks through. And I want to ask you, would you spend some time this week? I know it's hard for some of you who have many kids, but to just get a few minutes, even 30 minutes to turn on your worship music, maybe switch off with your spouse and get into a comfortable chair and maybe get your favorite drink and just begin to reminisce about those moments when God was everything to you. He was so beautiful that you could stare at him forever. Where the word of God was sweet to your soul. Where when he called you to obey, to do something, you would obey it with glad hearts. Number one, reminisce. Number two, he says, repent. Repent. What is repentance? Well, what's interesting, like I told you, is that Jesus, the master physician of our soul, doesn't say repent first to the church. Because these are church people who are theologized by the Apostle Paul and Timothy and so forth. And so they knew, like many of us, how to repent without actually repenting. Like some of us know how to worship without actually worshiping. Do you understand? Like we know how to lead Bible studies without even loving the Bible. That's, not, that's what church people get, get good at. So, so I remember this time when I was getting mentored. I, I have a mentor who's in his 70s. We Skype once a month every, for the last six, six years almost. And so we were Skyping one particular day and he asked me this question. Dave, when you repent and you return to Jesus, what's the look on Jesus' face when you repent? I'd never thought of that because when I repent, I never even looked at Jesus ironically. And he said to me, he smiles. And in my head, theologically, I said, that's right. But in my heart, it was vehemently opposed to this. And I didn't know why. So I processed for a week, and it dawned on me. The reason why I couldn't believe this was twofold. One, I knew the depth of my sin better than anybody else. I've thought things. I've done things. I've, I've had motives that were so jacked up that I was so ashamed that I didn't want to even share it with my accountability partners. Not only that, but when I grew up as a kid and I disappointed my father... Or if I messed up, the only look I had on my dad's face ever was disappointment or anger. Never once did I do something awful and I looked at my dad and he smiled. Ever. He didn't even smile after he punished me. And so for me to think through how in the world 
Is this gospel true that my dad wasn't perfect, but God is? And you're going to tell me that a holy and righteous and perfect God would look upon someone so wicked and sinful and rebellious like me, and I would just simply say sorry and come back home, and he would smile over me. Like the prodigal son story? That was hard to believe. And yet, by the promises of God and the finished work of Christ, it's true. There is no condemnation now. For those who are in Christ Jesus. And so you've never repented unless you've seen the smile of Jesus. If your repentance is, you have this guilt complex where you just feel bad, you cry out, you pray, but you never get to Jesus, you've never repented. And if you've gotten to Jesus but you haven't seen his smile, then you haven't repented. You understand? And if you don't believe me, go to Luke 15 and watch what the father does when his prodigal son comes home. The father runs to his son, throws his arms around and kisses him. That's what he does with you every time you return home. So repentance becomes joyful, isn't it? It becomes beautiful. So if we want to return to our first love, we need to reminisce. Then we need to repent. And then the Bible says we need to do the things we did at first or return to doing the things we did at first. What did you do at first? See, a lot of us, we've been Christians for so long, we forgot. That's why I love our church plan because we see people coming to Christ regularly and I get to see in their response what we're supposed to be doing every day. Last year, a, a graduate student moved to uh, uh, Chicago and she was uh, studying in a master's program near our church. And so she uh, grew up a Buddhist, but she ended up coming to our church because she was looking for a community. She stayed for about a year. And after a year, I approached her after a service and I asked her, I said, hey, what do you think about all this? And she was still hesitant. So I told her about the cross. I just felt led to tell her about the cross, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And as I told her about the cross, she wept. She wasn't a believer, but she wept. And this is the question she asked me in her tears. Why? Dave, why would Jesus go through that for me? A month later was Good Friday service, and she happened to be in the same car as me. We drove up to this Good Friday service where seven different preachers were preaching on the seven last words of Jesus. And I got to talk to her more about the gospel. And then we preached the gospel to her seven different times. She heard the gospel. She wept during that service. That Saturday night was our Easter service for our Saturday location. So I preached the gospel. I had an altar call. She came forward to receive Christ with tears in her eyes. Her small group surrounded her. They prayed for her. Her life was changed. She got baptized, shared her testimony. Powerful. That's how we're supposed to be every day. Every day, if we understand the gospel, we should sit there and wonder like she was and say, Jesus, why did you suffer on that cross for me? I don't even love you well. I've never been very radical, never been very obedient. And even when I am obedient, I do it for the wrong reasons. Jesus, why? With tears of gratitude, say, Lord, thank you. I receive you as my Savior. Thank you, Jesus. I don't deserve this. And every day to stand in tears and wonder that Christ knew exactly how rebellious you would be after you came to Christ. And he still chose before the foundations of the earth to set his affection upon you. You should stand in wonder. And I believe by the spirit of God if you pray, you do these three things. You reminisce for a season. You repent regularly until you get the smile of the father. And you return to doing the things you did at first. I believe God by his mercy will return not just you individually but I hope your whole church would return to first love. And the spirit of God would move in such a significant way so that through you, many would come to know that he alone 
is our Savior and King. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this church, for the privilege for me to return uh, a year later and to be able to preach your word one more time. Thank you for the kindness that they've shown to me over these two weekends, God. And I pray now a blessing over every person, especially those who have yet to receive Christ. I pray, Holy Spirit, come. Open their eyes the way you did to me over 20 years ago on that beach. Open their eyes to see that they are the beloved of God because of Christ alone. And then, Lord, I pray for those who are believers for many decades who have forsaken your, their first love. Lord, by your grace, open up a feast for them tonight. And may they eat and sit at the feast of Jesus Christ and his word. And all of God's people said amen. God bless you.